The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Roadmap to Reengagement, a visual guide to overcoming individual and systemic barriers to HIV care and treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JDT 860. Downloadable additional resources are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Barathen Taiwo from the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to this virtual tour of the Road to Reengagement in HIV Care. We hope this activity will serve as a guide to identifying and overcoming individual and systemic barriers to HIV care and treatment in order to re-engage people with HIV who are falling out of care. This activity is one of many resources in the larger re-engaged people living with HIV in care through Workforce Response and Resiliency Initiative. The Reinforce Initiative is bringing a number of valuable educational resources to both HIV care providers and patients with a focus on re-engagement in care. Please stick around for more information about accessing other activities within the Reinforce Initiative. As you recall, the UNAIDS has set really ambitious targets for 2025 that 95% of people at risk of HIV infection should be on effective combination prevention options, that 95% of people living with HIV should know their status, 95% of people living with HIV who know their status should initiate treatment, and 95% of those on treatment should be virally suppressed. These ambitious targets are critical if we are to end AIDS by 2030, as is currently envisioned. Of course, this initiative takes real advantage of two tenets in HIV care, which are treatment as prevention and U equals U, which means that when patients are fully suppressed, they really do not transmit HIV. We do have the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative, and as you can see, this EHE goal includes reducing new infections by about 90% by 2030 and also increasing knowledge of HIV status to 95% by 2025, increasing linkage to care to 95% by 2025, and increasing the percentage of people who are virally suppressed to 95% by 2025, which is really our goal. If we look at the United States and try to assess where we are with these goals, we will see that in 2020, out of every 100 people living with HIV, there were about 65 who were virally suppressed. 74% essentially were receiving some kind of HIV care and 51% only were retaining care, meaning that the gap was still significant in terms of the proportion of individuals who were not in care, coming up to about 49%. And so when you look about, when you think about the ideal HIV care continuum, this is what you expect. The initial step is to actually diagnose HIV infection. And following diagnosis, the next station in that chain is to achieve linkage to care. And linking the patient to care really by itself is a good thing, but engagement in care is important so that the next station in that continuum can be achieved, which is to actually prescribe and start taking antiviral therapy. Of course, we know that taking antiviral therapy is good in itself, but the goal is to achieve viral suppression because we know that is when you actually can reap the benefits of ART in reducing the immune activation, reducing the inflammation, reducing the immunologic degradation that occurs with HIV infection. And of course, for antiviral therapy to be maximally potent and effective, the individual needs to be in care. And so this continuum is critical and any interruption at any of these stations in this chain can be consequential. 
of course, being out of care, being lost to follow-up can occur at any of these stages. For example, a patient might be diagnosed with HIV in a clinic or the emergency room, or it might be at an event where HIV testing has been performed. And they may never find their way to the clinic, in which case linkage to care does not occur. Or the patient might find their way to the clinic, but because of a variety of reasons, they may not continue along this continuum as you would like them to. Whatever is the underlying root cause, being out of care or lost to follow-up is something that is part of the reality of the HIV care continuum. And as providers, we have to be very mindful about how we can intervene to make sure that we do not allow any breakages to occur in this critical chain. Of course, inevitably, some of our patients are out of care or they are lost to follow-up. And when these occurs, there are consequences, not just for the individual, but also for public health. Starting with the individual, we can appreciate that if the person was virally suppressed before, it takes only about 14 days for the virus to rebound. And if nothing is done for replication to, of course, continue, and before you know it, the CD4 count will drop. The patient might become an AIDS patient by virtue of CD4 count less than 200. And that can cascade into opportunistic infection cascade into increased risk of malignancy, hospitalizations, increased mortality. And all of this will also occur in the context of increased risk of antiviral resistance if they are being on treatment and particularly if they've been intermittently adherent. And from the public health perspective, we know that secondary HIV transmission can occur because for HIV transmission to occur, one really needs to have viremia. The U equals U tenet, which we talked about earlier, really has shown that if the person's virus load is less than 200, there is no opportunity for that individual to transmit HIV. So consequences for the individual and the society significant for every individual who is out of care or lost to follow up. So as clinicians, we really must pay attention to this to make sure that we mitigate and hopefully prevent or intervene in this scenario. Now, there's a correlation between retention in care and mortality. But everyone understands mortality. We don't want our patients to die. We want to keep them healthy and have disease-free life. And as you can see, if you have a patient who's optimally retaining care, then you can see that the hazard of mortality increases progressively as the retention in care worsens to the extreme of a patient who's totally out of care totally dropped out. You can see like a fourfold increase in the hazards of mortality. That patient who's sporadically in and out of care might be the person you see in the hospital. When they come out of the hospital, they have a, a three-month prescription, they take it, and then they drop out of care again. And then you see them in the hospital in another six months or a year. And those patients still have accentuated risk of mortality, but you can see that it's somewhat lower than the person's totally out of care and so on and so forth. And of course, one of the things that's important in this whole space is the risk of HIV transmission. Which portion of our patients really contributes to HIV transmission? Because that's important from a public health perspective. And when you look at individuals who are unaware of their HIV infection, individuals who are aware of their HIV infection, you can see really important results. So this graphic really from 2016, when we had a total transmission of about 38,700 in the United States, it showed that amongst individuals who were aware of their HIV infection, the individuals who were not in care actually were, they contributed to about 16,500 infections. 
higher than the contribution from any other group along that distribution. So if there was a group that we wanted to really make sure we actually intervened upon, it would be this particular group because, as you can see, this group really drives a new infections. And again, I'll draw your attention to the group that had zero contribution, which are the individuals in care and HIV suppressed. This is so critical and it's really liberating for patients when we as providers convey that information to them that one of the reasons you take treatment is to really make yourself not capable of transmitting HIV. That's a really good goal to aim for. Why do people living with HIV fall out of care? Structural barriers, for example, our patients may be limited in their ability to just reach us. If this clinic is located somewhere that is distant from their residence and they don't have access to transportation themselves, that could be a problem. In some institutions, it might be even just the parking fees, and that may be prohibitive for some patients. Shortage of providers in community is an issue. There is a real aging of HIV treating providers. Many of them are getting close to retirement. Are we replacing this board adequately? Sometimes clinics are not properly structured to accommodate the needs of patients. Nobody wants to come to the clinic to wait for hours or talk or not have somebody who can understand their language, speak to them. Incarceration, stigma, discrimination, inequity in healthcare services, negative care experiences, lack of centralized services. All of these things create barriers that individuals on their own cannot overcome. And really, as providers, we have to look around and say, are there things within my health system? Are there things within my clinic that may be creating structural barriers that are not encouraging retention in care. What about the individual level? Some things occur at the individual level that may be contributing to a difficulty being retained in care. Things like childcare services, things like job insecurity, food insecurity, language barriers, mental health is something that we often as providers neglect to address directly in taking care of our patients. But I would encourage everyone to really make it a vital sign in the clinical assessment of our patients with HIV to really make sure that we are directly asking about this mental health issues, sometimes lack of insurance. I had patients who have had to, were just called by their insurance agency and told, well, you can't go to clinic X anymore. And so those patients have to find another provider and sometimes care interruptions occur in that setting. If you have a lot of patients who have been warriors, who have survived this initial decade of the epidemic, and now they're maybe 30 years into ART, treatment fatigue sometimes crops up. And we have to be very mindful of that. Thankfully, there are some innovations in ART that may offer options for our patients who will be experiencing treatment fatigue, such as the opportunity to give some patients the injectable therapies. And hopefully in the future, means that can be even taken orally, but maybe a longer duration of action. Stigma and discrimination has come up multiple times. It is one of the reasons why patients don't show up in clinic. They may consider a clinic that is widely known as an HIV clinic. Well, some individuals might not want to go to that clinic for a variety of reasons. Maybe stigmatization might be one. But thinking about stigma, as we know, stigma stems from a set of negative, often unfair beliefs based on aspects of identity or circumstances. And the two big categories of stigma, one is external stigma in which negative beliefs directed towards an individual by others. And then the other is internal or internalized stigma, which is based on individuals' own beliefs about themselves. 
And sometimes we have a convergence of external and internal stigma. Stigma is intersectional, meaning that aspects of identity and circumstances interact and overlap in ways that determine how stigma is experienced by an individual. Now, patient-reported barriers to ART adherence has been studied. There are numerous publications on this, and this particular meta-analysis looked at this particular question and stratified the responses by age into you know, adults, adolescents, and children. And looking at the results, the studies that they looked at included about almost 17,000 adults. These are answers that our patients have given us when we ask them about barriers to ART adherence. Sometimes they say we just forgot. Sometimes it's travel, they're busy, changing routine. All of these things are very common. And there's some that we can intervene on the moment we hear about it, like toxicity, right? A patient saying, well, I don't like this medication. Well, that's an opportunity to really step in and say, okay, what don't you like about the medication? What is it doing for you? How can we change that to something that you can work with? Sometimes we can see the stockouts being sick, being depressed, substance use, stigma, all of these things have been described as potential causes for poor adherence. And the interesting thing is that when in this particular study, they looked at also the potential causes of poor adherence in adolescents, there was a lot of overlap. As you can see, forgetting was a reported barrier by 63% of adolescents, but it was one of the top five also amongst in adults. And you can see in adults was reported 41% and also was part of the top five in children. It was 29%. What this is telling us is there is an overlap, regardless of age, in the drivers of ARC not adherence. But the overlap is imperfect. And whether it's an adult, it's an adolescent, or it's a child, one has to individualize, even though there's an overlap in some of these factors that people, our patients, are really struggling with and which constitute our barriers to their adherence. And of course, the children, again, I said earlier on, you see, forgetting rises to the top again, 29%, changing routine, secrecy, stigma. Secrecy, stigma, those even may be particularly important in school-age children because children, adolescents can be brutal in their passage of negative comments. The person with HIV might want to completely avoid at all costs, even if that meant not taking their medication. So what does this all mean? What it means is that we have to be mindful that in every patient who is not taking that ARX medication, there is usually at least one reason, frequently multiple reasons. And as providers, we really should go through all of these possible reasons and elicit what might be affecting a particular patient. So identifying patients who are out of care. To do that, we have to understand what is retention in care. And retention in care is broadly defined as a patient's regular engagement with medical care at a healthcare facility after initial entry into the system. And several groups have come up with different measures or metrics that we can use to measure retention. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and National HIV Strategy, for example, defines it as having at least two CD4 cell counts or viral load tests that are three or more months apart during the year of evaluation. Whereas the Health Resources and Services Administration and Institute of Medicine defines it using medical visit dates. So at least two medical visits that were at least 90 days apart in the measurement year. 
So I wouldn't be surprised if in your clinical setting, you use another kind of definition for retention in care. For example, you could use number of missed appointments or no shows during an observational period, which is mixed visits. You could use appointment adherence, number of completed visits divided by the total number of scheduled visits. You could use visit constancy or you could use gaps in care. So all of these are different definitions that can be used to define retention in care. The challenge to you as a provider is that you should have one. And the next challenge to you as a provider is, have you actually gone back to check your clinic to see how many of my patients are retained in care? Because we see the patients that we see, we don't see the patients that we don't see. The only way we can uncover those patients who are out of care is by actually checking. So please look at all of the available metrics for defining retention in care. Choose the one that you want to use for your practice and do it. Further, there are more advanced or more, perhaps more involved methods of identifying patients who are out of care, such as the data to care approach. Even though they are involved, they are actually quite helpful. This particular approach was developed by the CDC. It's a public health strategy. It uses multiple sources of data to identify persons with HIV who are not in care or who are in care but are not suppressed. And the goal here is to link or re-engage them to medical and social services. And the ultimate goal, as we know, is to support HIV care and achieve viral suppression. Again, being mindful of that goal of getting to that 95, 95, 95 by 2025, again, as a pathway to ending AIDS. Because this is a multimodal approach, it involves different sources of data. HIV surveillance data might come in handy. Pharmacy refill data might play a role. Clinic appointment data other treatments and care data sources. So basically being mindful of the data that you have, exploring and exploiting that to deliver targeted care is the whole idea here. And so the question for you is, do you know whether data to care is something that has been offered by your health care agency, by your public health department? But it may very well be. Many states adopt this, which would be nice to check in your health department. And so how might this work in real life? It really is a tripartite activity that involves the health department, the healthcare provider, in this case you, and the client or patient. And of course, the first thing is to, if you're trying to find these persons who are out of care, the health department has resources that you can use to generate a list of clients identified as not in care. But what you have to realize is that the initial list generated by the health department might actually be a large list. There has to then be refinement of that particular list, which is shown as number two here, in which you really use another method. It might be using pharmacy record or something else to then confirm that the person that was identified has been not in care. And having cleaned that list and now know who actually is out of care, there's that communication between the health department and the healthcare provider to understand what can we do about this particular individual. And we go to step four, in which the health department can contact the patient or client with the goal of getting them into care to see the healthcare provider. As you can see, it might look complicated, but actually it's quite practical. And it can be made even more practical by having the healthcare provider be the party who will take care of that fourth step of contacting the individual who's been lost to care. So how do we re-engage persons living with HIV in treatment and also make sure we retain them in care? And a key step in this process is really to make sure we monitor. Monitoring to improve retention in care is an activity that every clinic, every provider must put into their routine. And the goals of monitoring include empowering the patient, 
making sure that we deliver a proactive intervention that is personalized to the needs of the patient. And it also really gives the patient confidence that the provider is working for them. It strengthens the patient-provider communication, which is a powerful ingredient in promoting retention and care. There are several things that can be used to enhance this monitoring. Some of them come in the form of instant pharmacologic measurements, such as point-of-care HIV testing, point-of-care urine-based drug assays. These measures are not available in routine in most practices at this time, but certainly the opportunity to monitor can occur in the context of the patient-provider contact without not to use enhanced pharmacologic measures. And so thinking about what you can actually do in addition to monitoring is to consider differentiated service delivery. This is a process that's really evolved over a very long time to where we are now, where it's really centered around the patient. And it's really defined as an approach that simplifies and adapts HIV services to better serve the needs of people living with HIV and optimize available resources in health systems. So really making sure that what you're doing really matches what the patient needs is important. How will this happen? Well, there are several building blocks that are part of this model. First, you have to understand who is it that will be delivering this particular service. And the answer will depend on the setting. Is it the physician? Perhaps in my clinic, it would be the physician. But there are other models where a nurse would be the appropriate person. In fact, in our clinic, we have a pharmacist too. So it might be a pharmacist. But other studies might be a family member might be community health worker. And what are you actually delivering? Are you trying to deliver clinical monitoring, adherence support, OI treatment? What exactly is being delivered? What's the frequency that will work for that patient for whom you're trying to customize this service delivery? And where will it take place? Some services are best done in the patient's home. Some are best done in the patient's community. For example, if you are trying to do HIV testing, perhaps if you were going to do self-testing, maybe the best way to do it is to mail it to the individual's home. Maybe it should be done through the pharmacy, doing it, you know, mailing it directly to the patient's home. Basically, you have to consider the who, the what, the where, and when of service, customize it to the individual. Ultimately, all of this is being done to optimize outcomes for the patient. And apart from the decentralized service delivery, another important intervention could be medical case management. And this is something that different clinics do in different ways. And the extent to which one clinic might be able to do it versus another depends on resources available to the clinic. Medical case management involves a variety of activities, often coordinated by social workers, and it may include any of a number of things, such as help scaling appointments, help accessing medical insurance, renewing insurance, help getting discounts on insurance, on co-payments, access to food housing. And for patients who need additional help, maybe maybe mental health care or substance use treatment, etc., all of these can be coordinated amongst a variety of other things for an individual. And so it's very important that HIV clinics taking care of persons with HIV really should have at least an approach to medical case management for clients. We've been fortunate to get some resources through philanthropy to support these kinds of activities because they're often not billable. Some of our patients also need legal services, medical equipment, social security benefits, pharmaceutical benefits, and so on and so forth. Another modality that can be come in handy is HIV patient navigation. 
And when you try to drill down to what exactly does patient navigation mean, it's one of those things where you can say, well, you know it when you see it. Ultimately, the goal of patient navigation is to help patients get through systems that are complex. And this actually emanated in the cancer disciplines or cancer-related disciplines where efforts were needed to reduce cancer-related disparities and barriers to care. But it has since moved out of there and it's really gained some momentum in the HIV field. But again, the definition is somewhat hard to pin down. But many different individuals can help navigate patients. Could be the healthcare provider, could be social workers, could be the peers, etc. Might require formal education, might not. Essentially, it's trying to help patients get through complex health systems, which our hospitals, our clinics sometimes can be, especially if the services sort of scattered. And studies have been done to try to identify whether this patient navigation actually helps. And in this study, Looking at 17 studies that have reported positive associations, you can see that the positive associations actually in different areas. For example, of the studies that assess linkage to care to determine how patient navigation impacted linkage to care, 83% of them reported positive associations. Studies looking at retention in care, 91% of them reported positive associations from patient navigation. You can see positive effects also when virus suppression was the metric and also when medication adherence was the metric. So you can see that patient navigation really can impact different things that are important to maintaining patients in care and keeping them in care. In this particular study, in a care coordination program that provided long-term comprehensive case management, structured health education, patient navigation. So this combo of services done in New York City, over 300 individuals, you can see that this composite intervention really increased the proportion of individuals who achieved who were re-engaged in care. Compared to individuals who got standard of care treatment, those who were exposed to this intervention that included patient navigation and structured health education actually had about a four and a half fold increase in their odds of being of re-engaging in care and also had a two and a half fold increase in their odds of achieving virus suppression. So this actually can be effective for our patients. Another approach that we can consider is retention through enhanced personal contact. In this randomized trial, participants were divided into standard of care therapy, which included the usual things you'll do in your practice. Another group had standard of care combined with enhanced personal contacting, which included interim phone call, reminder phone calls, missed visit phone calls. So basically enhanced contact and brief face-to-face visits as part of this enhanced personal contact. And then the third group had the enhanced personal contact plus behavioral skills. And you can see this behavioral skills targeted organizing skills, organizational skills, communication skills, problem solving skills, etc. And what did it show? You can see that visit constancy and visit adherence, which is really what you want. Visit constancy defined as the percentage of patients with a care visit in each of three consecutive four-month intervals really increased, was higher, the odds increased by 1.22 compared to standard of care. And interestingly, the addition of skilled, the enhanced addition of skills building components to enhance contact did not really make a big impact. And looking at some of the other metrics that were looked at, proportion at cancel clinics, kept visits, there really did not seem to be any particular advantage to adding this behavioral skills building part to the enhanced contact. So this is somewhat the good news for providers who are trying to think, oh, what should I do? Where should I invest resources? And what this is telling us is that, yeah, if you can invest resources in the enhanced contact, that may be all that you need to do. You may not need to do the additional layer of the skills building and behavioral stuff.
Another clinic that is quite notable and really trying to help with this whole idea of patients lost to care and trying to get them in care is the Mass Clinic in Seattle, Washington, which uses a walk-in and incentivized care model. And the patients who patronize this clinic, amongst 95 patients who were enrolled in the first two years in this clinic, 86% used illicit drugs or hazardous levels of alcohol. 72% had psychiatric illness. 65% had unstable housing. These are patients who are the highest risk of being lost to care. And the package of services delivered under the mask clinic is quite comprehensive. Not only is it walk-in services, patients had access to STI treatment, they had access to referral to the data to care program to again try to get them back into care. So it's a very comprehensive wraparound type of process. And in this primary evaluation outcome was looking at the percentage of patients who actually achieve our suppression at least once after enrollment in the clinic. And secondary outcomes, we're looking at continuous viral suppression defined as at least two suppressed results in a row, at least 16 days apart, and also engagement in care. And looking at the first measure, 95% of patients engaged in care in the first year after enrollment. Pretty remarkable. Again, this was in 2016. And again, if you remember what we just said about the characteristic of the individuals enrolled in the clinic, they were the patients who were not going to be engaged in care. But what did this clinic achieve? You can see virally suppressed at least once, 80%. Continuously virally suppressed, you can see 54%. And virally suppressed as at the end of 2016, 65%. Showing that really this sort of wraparound services can help our patients achieve our suppression. So again, just think about your own practice. Think about the patients, what are they being offered, and look at these different models that I've shown to be effective and what can you do in your neck of the woods. Another approach that you can, of course, do is peer engagement, uh, support groups. We know support groups and peer-to-peer -peer advocacy is a powerful way to reduce stigma and discrimination, reduce physical and emotional isolation, improve self-esteem, build skills, empowers patients, peer-led education can improve medication adherence. This is very particularly powerful in groups such as in adolescent populations where peer pressure, peer influences can be particularly powerful. And in the era of Zoom, where you don't have to be physically congregated in the same place, the ability to host support groups actually has been enhanced. So you, have, you can think of ways to make this happen for your patients. And the last model we'll talk about is really practical advice for retaining and re-engaging individuals. And here we can look at different categories of patients. We can look at older patients. And the key to this is actually to try to individualize the approach. As we saw earlier, the barriers to retention in care differ from one person to the other. And you can, as a clinician, come up with a list of potential barriers, as you can see here. Stigma and discrimination, fear of disclosure, transition from commercial insurance to Medicare, negative care experiences, treatment fatigue, the list goes on and on. I have examples of patients who, as I said earlier on, they were just called by the insurance company. There's been some changes in the clinics that they can go to. And such patients will just, some of them just disappeared. And we found out only because we reached out to them as part of our routine case finding activity, which I hope you are doing. And a social worker might say, oh, okay, let's make sure you actually reach that other doctor. Or 
by the way, you can actually come to Activic if you did this or did that. And so just understanding what the particular barrier is at the particular patient might be important. Some patients have had issues keeping their appointments because they have just too many appointments. We have many patients who come to see us from quite far distances. And if they had to come to see the cardiologist on this particular day and then travel back an hour and then come back two weeks later to see another person and then come back to see me the following week, then they're going to start missing appointments. Can you work with them to consolidate all their visits into one particular visit? And so really getting to the root of the issue is so critical. In adolescence, it's so important to understand how important their social lives are to them and also the importance of mental health, the peer pressure effect, the fear of leaving school, just the mere thought of invisibility that comes with youthfulness. So all of these things should really be directly interrogated. And if you find out what is stopping your patient from adhering to clinic visits or medication, then you can intervene. Stigma and discrimination tends to be one that is really hard, external stigma, where you may be limited in your capacity, ability to intervene because it's more of a systemic thing, right? You can't change the whole system. But maybe you can work with the participant, the patient, to build resilience and to really reinforce their internal defenses against receiving this particular external stigma. And if they have internal stigma that they are dealing with, that is something that through counseling and practical examples, sometimes individuals can overcome it. And sometimes you talk to the patient, they may not give it to you. For you to actually get that information, you have to build trust, which is why the monitoring and the engagement over time is really important. And so the importance of social work, the importance of having a team approach cannot be overemphasized. And sometimes we have individuals who have challenges with housing, food, insurance, et cetera. Some patients may be difficult to reach due to telephone issues of mailing addresses that can't, that they're hard to find. You may be able to get resources to actually find patients. If the patients won't come, you may have to go to them. It depends on the kind of access you have to different resources. Helping patients offset the costs of co-payments, for example might be an important thing. And that's, again, wanted to repeat that if it can be, if resources are not available locally, philanthropy sometimes can help. And I think we still live in a world where many people don't understand the importance of the work that we're trying to do to end AIDS, the importance of getting everybody in care. And perhaps you might look for those opportunities around you. For individuals who have substance use, some of the barriers that they experience can be just discrimination. People sometimes look at somebody who uses drugs and be dismissive of them, and they may perceive that and just not want to see you again. So how can we help patients access mental health services? Sometimes it might be possible to integrate mental health services and substance use services into your practice, in which case you co-locate those services that might be difficult if you're a private provider, but even in those situations, you should be able to establish linkage with mental health providers and know your public health agency. It's so important because they do have resources and it's key to have your social worker in the midst of all of this because they will often have more time than the average provider to address these issues and make the appropriate linkages. So we have covered a few interventions today, but there are many more that may be more relevant for specific populations of people living with HIV. The CDC has established a compendium of evidence-based interventions and best practices that allows you to search by intended population, desired intervention outcomes, and strategies.
And if you're thinking about the key takeaways, one of the most critical things in achieving this is to actually identify individuals who are lost to care. Because what happens is there are consequences for the individual and also for public health in terms of neurotransmissions. And we have many tools that have been shown to help us identify individuals who are lost to follow-up and also tools that we can use to improve the odds of getting individuals brought into care and retaining care. It's important to individualize intervention after understanding what the root cause of the non-retention is. And I think by doing all of this, we'll be able to improve the odds of achieving the 95-95-95 goal that we all dream of. This ends our discussion for today. I hope you found the activity interesting and useful for your practice. Please take time to view the Health HIV Reinforced Initiative Resource Center for many additional tools and interventions that can support your retention and re-engagement in care efforts, as well as information about capacity building assistance. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JDT 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated.